0: In 2022, a crack writing duo was sent to prison for podcasting crimes that they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security prison to the Austin Underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as Game Masters of Fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find their website, maybe you can hire Retro Arcana. We join our hosts now as they enter the elevator at the top-secret podcast bunker. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Jeff.
1: So, uh, what's that you got in your hand? What are you reading there?
0: Oh, this? This is Building Blocks of Tabletop Game Design by jeffrey engelstein and isaac Shalov. it's uh Uh, and it's it's an encyclopedia of game mechanisms oh wow it is well over a hundred different game mechanisms and you'll going through this it's all broken out by um description of the mechanism what category it would fall in like Turn order structure, action structure.
1: This sounds like some deep level nerd shit. The kind of stuff that like we could seriously entertain ourselves with on the next road trip to Colorado. Absolutely.
0: I mean, this is this is definitely a uh, an encyclopedia. It's an educational uh, thing, but I absolutely do believe that we're gonna find this useful. A lot of the mechanics in here you see in uh, board games, but you'd be surprised at the amount of overlap that happens there particularly particularly with many games inside of tabletop rpgs
1: oh cool you know i've actually got something i want to talk to you about like with games inside rpgs but uh like if i wanted to score a copy of that where would i get it
0: i got this on amazon this is the second edition printing there is a first edition
1: printing as well uh, so we could actually have Edition Wars over a book about other games. Absolutely. What are you reading there? Oh, this is the rule book from the new uh, Warriors of Crin board game. It comes with the Dragonlance Deluxe Edition that just came out from Wizards. And you can buy it on its own as well. Uh, the reason that I was just thinking about it is you were mentioning games inside of role-playing games. And like, you know... We've done that sort of thing before, right? You've got your MechWarrior campaign, but then when uh, the mechs throw down, you pull out the maps and you essentially play Battletech. So what this board game does is it allows you to take your PCs or some pre-generated ones if you just want to play it as a board game and have them running around on a mass combat battlefield during the War of the Lance in the new Dragonlance adventure. So... um. Long story short, like, you've got these battle boards that represent different kinds of terrain, and there's objectives, and there's little markers that represent troops, formations of infantry, formations of cavalry, formations of, uh, artillery troops, right, like arrows or javelins or what have you, but you also have miniatures that represent the individual heroes, and the heroes can move across the battlefield fighting enemy champions or taking objectives or rescuing a spy or in one case um we had a ranger post themselves up on this rocky outcropping next to one of the battle maps and just start taking out enemy troops it is so awesome because you get to play out the battles and it's not as complex as it looks this is not um you know, Warhammer 40k for for D&D. It's actually, the the troop counters are more to count numbers of troops. You're not gonna mess with formations. You're not going to mess with specific tactics. All of that comes into the game through cards and dice. So you get this cool narrative battle, but you're not having to stretch a measuring tape and go with fiddly little movements and troop formations and things like we used to have to with uh, tabletop miniatures. I'm really taken with this. I've only played two games of it, but I think not only is it a fun little board game on its own right, but this would be awesome if you're running the Dragonlance campaign to let your players feel like they're really having an effect on a large-scale battle.
0: Oh, very interesting. Uh, Out of curiosity, do you think it would integrate with, you know, 5th edition?
1: Well, yes, um, that's what it's designed for. It's designed for the 5th edition Dragonlance campaign. Now, I will add a tiny caveat to that. It is specifically tailored for the new Dragonlance campaign that just dropped. So, the game has objectives and events that happen at various times during the battles that are part of specific chapters of that Adventure, so you could retool it to do something in a general fifth edition campaign or in your fifth edition campaign, but you would kind of need to play it a few times, figure out the flow, and and then write your own event paragraphs. Um, oh, okay. So so it is it is pretty focused on on what it's trying to do, but. You raise an interesting question. I don't think it would be too hard for them to throw out new scenario books for this.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking as you were talking about it, is it sounds like a really cool way, really kind of evocative way to do mass battles in D&D. Mm-hmm. And I think they would be remiss not releasing uh, either generic or for some of their other uh, properties.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would be surprised if, if they're not watching sales to determine whether or not that's a viable thing to do. And whether or not Wizards does it, you know people like you and I are going to start cludging together their own expansions.
0: Oh, of course. Our own personal private expansions. Indeed.
1: If I wanted to buy it, where could I get it? Ah, well, as always, I am going to uh, refer you to your friendly local game store, but it is also available from Wizards of the Coast. And something that we could talk about in a future episode, because I know the elevator's got to be getting close to the secret podcast layer at this point, um, is uh, Wizards offers this as a bundle where you could get the board game, the campaign book, and the game master screen, all in one box. And when you buy it, you also get all of the content unlocked for D and D Beyond. But you can't get that sort of electronic and physical bundle from your local game store. So uh-huh. there's a discussion to be had whether or not that's necessarily doing wrong by the game stores on Wizards' part. But that's that's a discussion for when we have long time.
0: Yeah, I mean, the elevator's got to be getting there soon.
1: Yeah, yeah. I noticed that it uh, runs faster or slower depending on how long we're talking about products.
0: I know. Isn't that weird?
1: Yeah, but they always said the elevator pitch should be the length of an elevator ride. I just think we're lucky that our elevator seems to adjust itself.
0: You're telling me, man. Well, looks like we're here. Now in the secret podcast bunker, our heroes begin the Retro Arcana Podcast. Welcome
1: back once again to the Retro Arcana Podcast. I'm Jeff. I'm Bobby. And today we're going to be talking about the Everyday Heroes role-playing game. But before that, we do have some news we are saddened today to announce the passing of two luminaries in the gaming industry, Kim Moen and Ed Pugh.
0: Ed Pugh, founder, president, and CEO of Reaper Miniatures, passed away November 24, 2022. Founded in 1992, Reaper Miniatures has been the preeminent American manufacturer of pewter and plastic miniatures. Ed has been at the helm of Reaper for 30 years and grew the catalog of great products from the original Dungeon Dweller line all the way to the wildly successful Reaper Bones Kickstarters. Now, I myself bought two of those Kickstarters, and they the, the products were absolutely magnificent. Reaper also produces the Combat Assault Vehicle or CAV line of miniatures. A game is very similar to Battletech, which is very near and dear to both Jeff and my heart and we drew inspiration from it when designing Dominions of Steel. Ed dedicated his life to games and gaming, and his miniatures were absolutely top-notch. Ed Pugh was 64.
1: Kim Moen, perhaps the longest-serving former TSR employee at Wizards of the Coast, passed away on 12 December 2022. He was hired by TSR in 1979 and quickly became assistant editor of Dragon Magazine. He took over as editor-in-chief for two separate periods, beginning in 1981. He also worked on TSR periodicals like Amazing Stories and Strategy and Tactics, and edited Unearthed Arcana and wrote The Wilderness Survival Guide. Moen did a brief stint along with Frank Mentzer at Gary Gygax's New Infinities Productions, and wrote some of the Cyborg Commando novels before returning to TSR and staying on after The Wizards of the Coast acquisition retiring in 2013 after working on Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition. Of particular interest to my co-host Bobby, one of his non-TSR projects was the excellent Tobin Spirit Guide for the amazing West End Ghostbusters game. Kim Mohan was 73.
0: We did not know either Kim or Ed personally, but their presence and contributions to the hobby were evident. We tip our hats to them and send our condolences to their family and friends.
1: So today's feature is the Everyday Heroes role-playing game released in 2022 by Evil Genius Productions. If you were a fan of the original D20 Modern released back in the early 2000s during the original open game license rush, you'll be happy to know Everyday Heroes is a modern redo of D20 Modern with some very familiar names attached like Jeff Grubb and Owen Casey Stevens. The design team for the game is Siegfried Trent Chris Goober-Ramsley, with additional design by D. Todd Scott. The innovation of the original carried on in Everyday Heroes is that while there are character classes and levels in the D&D vein, the classes are less professions like fighter or cleric, and more archetypes of heroes based on the six ability scores. There are heroes who are strong, agile, tough, and so forth. This allows players to craft characters that match the tropes of action movies and television series, no matter what the character's job is. The game is so focused on emulating action films that the fine folks at Evil Genius have been licensing some pretty interesting IPs for a series of supplements based on things like The Crow, Escape from New York, Kong, Skull Island, Pacific Rim, and more. A great example of how the archetypes and classes of this game differ from D&D might be the A-Team, where Hannibal would have elements of the smart mastermind class, Faceman the charming manipulator class, B.A. the tough scrapper or maybe the strong brawler. Murdoch? Well, why don't we take a look at the book and see if we can figure it out? My initial impressions of Everyday Heroes are that I can't wait to get this to the tabletop. I really enjoyed D20 Modern when it was out, and I liked the way that players could build exactly the character they wanted. The only downsides to D20 Modern is it was hampered by some of the mechanics that we look back on the 3.0 and 3.5 edition of D&D now and go, well, it worked back then, but I wouldn't want to do it again, namely, All the fiddling with skill points, and sometimes the feat trees, some of which were a little bit of a newbie trap if you didn't know what you were doing, you would end up spending some of your feat picks on feats that just weren't all that useful. Everyday Heroes cleans a lot of that up and streamlines it and does it under the familiar framework of D&D 5th edition. I'm pretty jazzed about it. Bobby, what was your initial take?
0: And just reading the first 30 or so pages brings me back to the first time I cracked open D20 Modern. The inspiration and the intent of the creative team is very clear, which I believe will help lay the groundwork for a good book. I also like the clean professional layout. They, it, it's quite clear they've got some very
1: stellar design team uh, involved with this. I would tend to agree. I do like the look of the book. Um, yeah. So we can't talk about the physical product just yet because the book is not a physical product at this time. It's on its way. Um, when it does come out, it's going to be a 460-page hardcover. For the moment, the PDF is out to the Kickstarter backers only with only the quick start available through Drive-Thru RPG. But it is free, so you can take a look. The PDF is currently being edited to correct typos through bug reports by the Kickstarter backers, and the finished product will be posted to drive-thru when this quality control phase is complete. The physical book will also, of course, be available through distribution in Evil Genius Games. So um, let's talk about the art. Bobby, you mentioned the layout. What did you think about the art from the book?
0: I really, really enjoy the art in this book. Not quite as cartoonish as we saw in d20 modern mm-hmm. this has got a lot more well i mean all right so i take that back as i'm scrolling through there are some cartoonish type characters but you know how in the D books uh they have a very distinctive art style yes the this one and because this is done by a separate company it does not have that art style um a lot of the art is very um, very heavy graphic design. Like it, that de- you can definitely tell. It almost looks like some of the stuff that you see with digital. You know, they they'll take a digital picture and then do editing that way. Right. Um, particularly the part one heroes art, that looks very similar to just a real picture that somebody went through and did some digital editing on. But right. then further.
1: Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say sort of a digital age version of of rotoscoping like you would see in an old Ralph Bakshi film.
0: Yeah, yeah, something very similar to that. But as you go through and take a look at some of the other art, like the archetype art, mm-hmm. this is more in line with what you saw in the D20 modern game. It's You, you have a very talented artist who will draw a character.
1: Now, I don't know if you noticed, but those particular characters that you're talking about are iconic characters for this game, and they're actually called out by name in the IP if you take a look at the third-party license. And there is the ability for for you to publish your own expansions for this under their third-party license. But uh, each of those characters I hope to see fleshed out as the game line goes on, because some of them look like they would be pretty interesting to have in a game absolutely um
0: yeah going through i can definitely see their names i don't see stats for them yet but i'm sure that if they're
1: uh willing to license them that is something that they've got well i dig the i dig the art as you said the layout is pretty good the only thing that i think i might tone down a tiny bit are the caution stripes yeah um, <laughs> i do really like the caution stripes but on some pages they're thicker than others and I think uh, toning it down to the uniform smaller size would probably probably be a little easier on the eyes. I do like the caution stripe as an icon. Um, you know, you remember back in our uh, old BattleTech days, we used to use that as the I ejected from a mech and survived icon. Um, yeah, yeah. The loud handle, um, but other than that, the the book is laid out in a very intuitive way. It, it draws you through the character creation, the rules of the game. There's a great GM section, but we'll get into all of that later. Um, shall we talk about character creation? Let's. All right, cool. So one thing I noticed right away that makes it different from d and um, is that there are no rules for species, race, lineage, whatever term you're going to use. Um, so what they seem to have done is broken down that mechanic into two separate mechanics into background and profession. We'll get into that later. Um, so what you do is you choose a background, then you choose a profession, and, uh, then you choose one of the archetypes, which is based on one of the six ability scores, once you've chosen the archetype, there are a number of classes under that archetype that sort of takes strong and then gets specific with it, like brawler or uh, MMA fighter. So, uh, character creation follows very similar flow to Dungeons and Dragons. You're going to find a lot of identical terminology and, um, you know, with proficiencies and feats, and um, the ability scores work exactly the same way. So uh, that was my first impressions of character creation. Bobby, what's your takeaways? Yeah, I mean, as you
0: mentioned, there are no species in everyday heroes, but the mechanical benefits of 5e character creation still exist. Um, And these mechanical bonuses, as you were saying, are split up through professions and backgrounds. And what I mean by, by the mechanical benefits, these are things like, skill proficiencies, tool proficiencies, ability score bonuses, languages. Because every character in at least this book is is human, they needed a way to kind of differentiate them there. And so they split up where you get these uh, mechanical benefits into the professions and the backgrounds. Now, to clarify, backgrounds also exist in 5e. And this is then kind of give you a quick overview. Backgrounds in five e give you one of the following: a skill proficiency, a tool proficiency, equipment, and in five e, there were four minor aspects that dealt with personality. Uh, the first one being personality, and then there's ideal, bond and flaw. Five e backgrounds also give the player something known as a feature. The feature of the 5e backgrounds was thematic to whatever the background was. So the the folk hero was a, a background that you could do in 5e. And it had a feature known as rustic hospitality that gives the folk hero some in-game benefits, such as uh, being able to hide and rest among the commoners, and they'll shield you from law. You're, you no know, law enforcement uh, searching for you. Everyday Heroes has similar, but in kind of fitting with the modern theme, updated backgrounds. In these updated backgrounds, they give you a single ability score increase, which is thematically tied to the specific background. This is similar to uh, the subspecies that existed in 5e. And you remember I was saying they took the mechanical bonuses from. From species and put it into this. This is where one of those big things shows up. The species specific ability uh, score improvements now appear into professions. All told between those two choices of background and profession, any character built from in, in everyday heroes will have the same ability score bonuses as a similar as a similar character built within 5e. It's a, it's a good balance way to to do a human-centric game. Now, the four minor traits that I was talking about from fighty backgrounds have been decoupled from the backgrounds in everyday heroes, and it instead has its own section called persona, and that has been expanded from four minor traits to nine aspects, motivations, attachments, biography, belief, role appearance virtues flaws and quirks so some of them are the same but they've greatly expanded it out and 5e characters could gain inspiration points for playing to their background aspects but i i did not see a mechanical effect for the everyday heroes
1: so inspiration does appear in the gm section and it is on the official character sheet so the inspiration mechanic does exist in everyday heroes And uh, there was one other thing. You mentioned tool proficiencies. They changed uh, a little bit about the system. There's no longer a straight tool proficiency as it existed in 5e. There's an equipment proficiency, but they've kind of gone back to leaning on skills where 5e kind of assumed, well, if you have the cooking tool proficiency, you know how to cook. Um, If you have, so in Everyday Heroes, it takes it back to a little more familiar territory because I know it took me a while to unlearn. Well, where's the skill for X, Y, and Z? Oh, that's a tool proficiency now.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so this takes it sort of back to what we were used to.
0: Now the professions are built very similar to what you'd consider a species in Five E. Um, for instance, I'm looking here in the in the PDF we have academia, and it gives you. Uh, two ability score increases, increase your intelligence by two and other ability and another ability score of your choice by one to a maximum of 20. It gives you uh, an additional language of your choice, skill proficiencies and persuasion and either natural sciences or social sciences. It gives you a piece of iconic equipment um, actually, it gives you a couple pieces of iconic equipment. Laptop, computer, laser pointer, school ID card. It gives you a wealth level, which we'll talk about later. And then it gives you a special feature uh, debate. And the special feature uh, in the profession here was what the, the feature in um, 5e backgrounds would be. So they're, they're doing a little bit of mixing and matching in where they want things to appear but ultimately all of the all of the mechanical pieces are there. Everyday Heroes has 30 professions in total and 25 backgrounds uh for a total of 750 different
1: combinations. That's mind-blowing. So let's see um Bobby, let's talk about mechanics. what did you What did you see there that you enjoyed?
0: So much. Uh, <laughs> so something something else that I like for each of the backgrounds and professions, the game creators have included a breakdown of how to create new backgrounds and professions. This is something that I absolutely love. The fact that they are including this chart, these charts mean that they not only showed their work, which is something as a a game designer I love, but uh, it's also kind of an invitation, inviting people to tinker
1: with their system. Absolutely. Um, I'm already playing with creating things like this for various settings that I'd like to use this game for. Uh, One of the things I'm tinkering with is military sci-fi game, and it's so easy to use these rules to replace the general military profession with a series of like rating or MOS-based specializations to give you a little more high resolution for the military jobs. And you could do that with any focus. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Going through here, let's see. Another big change. And I find this to be very interesting, and we'll go more into the way armor works later. But the defense bonus in Everyday Heroes, what would be known as armor class in 5e, uh, is 10 plus the the archetype's preferential ability score bonus. And now, this is, this is really cool. So uh, the smart hero is going to add their intelligence bonus. The strong hero is going to add their strength bonus. And then you get a defense bonus based on your character level, and it's different between whether or not it's a strong hero, a fast hero, a tough hero,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, to give you your overall – the the overall defense bonus, which is the role needed to hit you. Right. It's and important. they completely removed AC. or they, they, I'm sorry. They completely removed armor from that.
1: Right. So, so what, I, what I took away from this is defense is AC in the sense that it determines the difficulty class to hit a character, but armor has absolutely no effect on defense. It has a new and very interesting mechanic that like Bobby said, we're gonna talk about later that is neither AC or DR. Everyone that's familiar with fifth edition D&D is familiar with armor makes your AC higher, DR reduces incoming damage, Neither of those has anything to do with armor in everyday heroes. And I think you're going to find what it does do pretty interesting.
0: Uh let's see. Tough heroes have actually have damage reduction, which is very thematic. They can absorb more damage. Um smart heroes, like so and 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 I guess by saying this and going through like this is each of the uh, each of the archetypes has a shtick. So the tough hero is tough, can absorb more damage. The smart hero has plans that they can do, and they spend a meta resource called a genius point to activate a plan. And these plans, whatever plans that they know, scale based on their level. And uh, I, I, I kind of I chose one of them at random uh, to give you to to use an, a, as an example called coordinated maneuvers. Has three levels of benefit: uh, a first level benefit, a fifth level benefit, and a ninth level benefit. And everything that I've read says that this kind of just scales. So the first level benefit gives all party members within range the ability to make an immediately le- an immediate move action. So this is the this is the I love it when a plan comes together kind of thing from your A team reference. Hannibal spends a genius point, and then everybody just breaks. They can, they all move. So if Hannibal were a fifth level smart hero, uh, the heroes can perform a dash dash action as a bonus action for the next ten rounds. So obviously, you can see the you can see the upgrade. At first level, you spend the genius point. Everybody just gets to make an immediate move action. Fifth level, they can make a dash action for ten for the next ten rounds. Ninth level, they get a movement speed increase of ten. And I believe that's for a minute. All of the coordinated maneuvers also provide uh, additional benefits. these were the these were the specific kind of benefits that I saw for each one, but all of them, provide uh, the following benefits. So opportunity attacks made in reaction to the movement from coordinated maneuvers is at a disadvantage. All affected heroes gain advantage on strength athletics checks until the start of the next turn. And then at the ninth level, uh, the, the advantage extends to dexterity acrobatics and constitution endurance checks but the duration is increased from 10 rounds to one minute.
1: So, in a way, these genius points are almost spells. Yes. Um, For a game that doesn't
0: have... Exactly. For a game that doesn't have spells, they needed a way to remodel those mechanics into other ways. The charming hero aka the charisma character the face man the face man they took the battle master fighter class and used the tricks to basically make this uh this charming hero they they have a resource which uh let's see what's it called influence influence yeah so The charming hero spins an influence die, which also raises by level. It can do interesting things.
1: One of the things I like about this, I was looking through some of the smart hero plans and some of these plans, because you can invoke them in the middle of of a game session or a mission, some of these plans can actually help alleviate the analysis paralysis when you're planning, say, a shadow run. And oh, absolutely. You've, you've got those one or two players that wants to make sure that everything is planned to a T, uh, which is that's how I play Shadow Run. Uh, but with some of these plans, you can circumvent those discussions because you can just pop the plans in the middle of the game that's already in progress and they apply retroactively. For instance, one of the plans when you spend your genius point says, Hey, I looked up the plans for this building that we're going into before we left on the mission. Like this is during a flashback sequence or a montage or whatever. I already have this knowledge. And so now I know the layout of the building as we go in. So I like that you can just invoke that with the genius point. My character was smart enough to think ahead and do this. Not exactly
0: a purely mechanical benefit, but more like invoking a uh, aspect and fate or something like that.
1: Right, right. Or um, in Inspectors, when you get to make one of the confessional scenes where you look at the camera and talk to the audience and say, and that's when it was really lucky that I had studied the floor plan to this building. Um, So this does allow the smart heroes to just pull these tricks out of their back pocket, which reinforces their role as the smart hero. Absolutely. Getting back to
0: the charming hero.
1: Yes.
0: All right. So they do these tricks. It's very similar to the battle master fighter in 5e. They have these, these dice that they use and they give them out to other players and it's them using their influence to affect things and you can do things like bark and order and have somebody make an immediate you know action or you could spend one to hey dodge that or hey watch out you know and then they get a chance to use that that resource that die they roll that die and they can take off that much damage it's very similar to the uh The old Warlord class from 4E, which never quite made it over to 5E. I love that class. Yeah, and it's mostly because their abilities all center on using their reaction when someone else is doing something. So another cool thing, you have the archetype. That's the smart, the fast, the the charming. And then within each of those archetypes is what's called the class. And so this would be similar to in 5e, you know, you have your you have your cleric. And then at third level, they are a life ward cleric. You know, they get those, they, they choose their domain there. Or uh, the fighter becomes the battle master fighter. So every single one of these six classes or six archetypes, excuse me have multiple uh classes that they can choose each one doing something a little bit different mm-hmm. um of note and i find this very interesting the smart and the charming archetypes have four classes instead of three all of the rest of them have three
1: right and you know i think that's interesting um and i wonder i wonder if that was done just because there's so many um, possibilities for that kind of character or I wonder if that was done to try to entice people toward the less immediately combat focused types of character although I mean, maybe the duelist is one of the charming classes
0: yeah that is very true Um, actually I think it might be more in line with the fact that they're trying to emulate D&D's mix of classes because multiple classes go all you know the the wizard obviously is an intelligence caster the sorcerer is a uh or the sorcerer and the warlock are charisma casters and i think they had a whole bunch of different classes in 5e and wanted wanted to use those mechanics and reskin those mechanics for their their classes oh. in everyday heroes
1: that's, that's entirely possible. I think we're going to see more classes for the archetypes in future products. Like Absolutely. Right, right now, there's a uh, demo for the Escape from New York module that's out that you can download and read through, but but we still don't have eyeballs on a lot of the other things. And so uh, I'm interested to see, like, for instance, when they drop Pacific Rim, which is going to have to do with, with Jaegers, with Mecha, you know, how are they going to integrate the Jaeger into the game? Is there going to be a character class? Is there going to be a background? Um, will they expand the skill list to add a Jaeger-specific pilot stat? Or will you just use vehicles? I'm interested to see how this game expands as it tries to cover all the different permutations they have planned.
0: Yeah, so you said they, they have Escape from New York out right now. Yes. Uh, what, what class is
1: Snake? that is a great question um let me see if i can look that up let's see here heroes gallery alpha bravo charlie and delta so there's no write up for uh, snake but alpha looks a whole lot like snake Okay. Uh, that is an uh, an agile scoundrel
0: agile scoundrel okay
1: yeah former driver and pilot for united states air force served with distinction in world war 3 um Let's see. So that's one of the um, pre gen characters. The pregens for this one are, by the way, at level five. Um, remembering that Everyday Heroes at this time goes from first level to 10th level. It, it, Absolutely. Yeah. So, yes, 10th level is where the game tops out at the moment. And I think for the applications the game is being written for, that's, that's probably plenty. Um, but then again i'm one of those crusty old players who in a dnds game says third level is professional fourth level is you're a hero but um okay let's see bravo uh is a tough scrapper fifth level okay charlie is a charming icon fifth level and the final pregen is delta who is a smart mastermind also uh fifth level so, um, yeah, we don't get stats for Snake Plissken just yet, but I'm taking a look through this this quick start and yes, your characters are fifth level. I imagine if this is the pattern that the movie-based books are going to go on, you're very rarely going to start at first level unless the movie has some sort of zero to hero um, plot line. So I'm I'm guessing that Right up the middle, fifth level is kind of their sweet spot for established. Like this hero has their shit together. Um, you know, this is a this is a by god hero. Now, something else to to note about that before we move on is that this game has no experience points. It explicitly says we use we use um, milestones for leveling, and that's that's how it works. And so I think that's very appropriate for this style of game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've I've always been a big fan of the milestone system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, you know, I see there are games for which experience points work, especially if you're going for that old school feel where different classes level at different times. But in something like this, where you're trying to do a team-based adventure story, I think it's perfectly appropriate to go with everybody's the same level. Everybody levels up at a dramatically appropriate time. It just works
0: yeah they they haven't done the different experience levels in a long time
1: yeah uh that went away when second edition sunsetted and they brought in third yeah so that answers the escape from new york question and 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 the the sort of side trip to to the module i do love the look at it lots of uh the look of it there's lots of blacks and reds um and very uh, neat yeah i'm looking
0: at their at their release list like the products that they're talking about you know escape from new york pacific rim there's going to be a highlander one yes uh, total recall yes universal soldier and rambo yes well as uh the crow and kong skull island pacific rim the ones you talked about
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean it's a pretty exciting release list if you grew up watching all these movies yeah um that, I only see one problem though basing a basing a product line on Highlander you get no longevity for two reasons one is we own we we know there's really only one Highlander movie and and two when you're releasing Highlander books there can be only one
0: there can be only one Highlander book you stole my joke um
1: great minds think alike
0: yeah I mean I, I was talking about the the Highlander TV show with Adrian Paul the other day, and I think you could do a campaign based on it. Um, I think it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, although every time you you take out another immortal and you go through a quickening, does that count as a milestone? Oh, good. I'm, I'm going to be kind of curious to see how they do
1: it. That would be kind of cool um you know you know in a weird way that reminds me of the way you had to level up as a uh, as a monk in first edition ad and d you know you hit a certain level and now if you want to level up you've got to go find the monk above you and kick his ass um so it kind of reminds me a highlander if you want to level yeah. up you better go find another another immortal and take him out take the head
0: there's only one <laughs> there, there, there can be only one
1: it's less a milestone and more a headstone. Headstone. There you go. Um, so, getting back into our discussion, uh, we <laughs> yeah. were just talking. We were just talking about the main archetypes and the classes under the archetypes, and I guess that segues us into your next point. Yeah. Next
0: point is, and one of the things that I like, Everyday Heroes takes a page from D20 Modern. It's mm-hmm. it's you know spiritual uh, predecessor, and does away with uh money but how do they deal with that easy wealth levels so this is an abstracted way of dealing with wealth which i feel is more realistic than counting out copper silver gold platinum you know nobody runs around with wads of cash in their pockets anymore unless you're playing a game set in the 80s um another interesting thing that i absolutely like is they've got a, a really robust list of equipment packs, um, which, you know, you started seeing in d and I mean, they you, they started that in what, second edition? Um, um,
1: yes, a very early version appeared in basic D&D in the module The Lost City. In the back, yeah. there was Ye Fast Pack, and there were three different packs you could choose from. And to this day, I keep a photocopy of that page with my old school essential stuff so that my players can just look at it and go, I'll take that back. I'll take that back. It makes
0: it really easy when it comes down to creating characters. You just grab a
1: pack and go. Right. And, you know, I've always liked this sort of thing because it it helps to be able to grab a pack that's pre-stocked for a particular activity and not have to worry about every little thing you know like oh do i have some you know 550 cord well yeah you know you would have that in in your you know outdoor survival pack why wouldn't you um i remember having some pretty stickler dms that said if it's not written on your sheet you don't have it and yeah yeah while while i understand that sort of mindset if you're playing a game where the central um conceit is you are going on a long distance, you know, journey and what you carry with you is what you've got. So part of the fun of the game is did I plan this well? If you're running an action movie, you don't want to get into that level of detail. You just grab there's my favorite my favorite pack here is called the badass pack, right? You just yeah, I'm gonna grab my badass pack and I'm gonna go on the adventure. I'm not gonna worry about whether I have a book of matches or or you know, whatever. I'm I'm just going to take my badass pack and go. Uh, I think it's pretty awesome.
0: Since we're talking about equipment, now that we're down in the equipment section, indeed, I think we should talk about the massive change to armor.
1: Yes, let's talk about it.
0: All right. So armor now has what's known as an armor value that when it's compared to the penetration value of a weapon might stop fatal damage when your hit points are reduced to zero this is a big change from the way that armor works where in 5e where armor added directly to your armor class and made you harder to hit um now it like i said so it basically when you are you drop to zero hit points, you're rolling a save, assuming your armor is higher than the
1: penetration value of the weapon. Absolutely a cool way to do this. So what you're saying is armor only comes into play if it was potentially a kill shot. That's exactly right. Um,
0: and I know that uh, you and I at least have had A lot of discussions of what hit points are yes and it very kind of explicitly states that your hit points are like level or your your actual wound level is like when you are reduced to zero hit points it is from zero to negative 10 that is i am actually being hit now and these are and these are actual damage that my body is going to sustain
1: right so the hit points that you're building up as your character levels represent uh willpower experience luck training Um, they're not necessarily physical toughness so you know when you take damage from an attack it's it's whittling down those resources not necessarily wounding the character until you hit zero
0: yeah yeah, it's just, it's, you are, you know, if you've got a whole bunch of hit points, you are a a really good fighter. This is your dodge and parry and your stamina and you get tired and your, maybe your defenses become slower over time. That's all what, that's what they're saying hit points are. And I think it's a a very kind of cinematic approach to it. It's uh it's what you would see from any like John McClain or something like that.
1: Right, right. So, you know, as McLean is beaten around and bloodied and you know, um just kind of kind of generally generally abused throughout the movie, his hit points are getting lower and lower and lower, but he hasn't taken a killing wound yet.
0: Absolutely. And the way that the armor would work these days, um, and we can, and we're going to get into what the the rough armor values and penetration values are in a, in a second. But if John McLean had armor with a, an armor value of two, and that killing shot, the one that would drop him to z- uh, uh, to zero hit points or lower, um, comes from something with a penetration value of one, then he rolls a special armor saving throw and if uh i want to say it's like dc dc 10 or dc 11 um he rolls his d20 and as long as the the number is above that the it just i want to say it just drops him to zero or does it does it stop it entirely jeff do you know
1: um, I believe it stops it entirely, but since you're asking, I am gonna go take a look at it right now. Um
0: All right, while you're looking that up,
1: sure.
0: I, I went through and I was taking a look at the equipment lists and they split everything up into civilian armor, military armor, civilian weapons, military weapons. Yeah.
1: Civilian
0: armor has got a range of one to three. And the highest one, uh, the Armor 3, is a medium ballistic vest, and that only provides its armor value against ranged attacks. So if somebody comes at you with a baseball bat, uh, it's just not going to do anything for you. Military armors have an armor value of 3 to 4 and encompass things like the modern combat armor, what they're calling the modern combat armor, and a heavy ballistic vest, which is what I'm guessing is a... A vest with like trauma plates or something in it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what what I find interesting is the modern combat armor in this book provides its armor value of three against all attacks, while the heavy vest only provides its armor value of four against ballistic weapons. On the, the weapon side with the penetration values, civilian weapons have a penetration value of one to four, with most weapons trending in the two to three range. So against civilian armor, unless you're wearing that heavy, you know, that, that medium ballistic vest, it's, it's going to kill you or potentially kill you. Right. And then with military weapons, they have a penetration value of three to five, with most weapons trending in that two to three range.
1: So on uh, page 140, it explains that if you make the armor saving throw, then you take no damage. Well, there you go. If you fail, you take full damage. Now the DC is 10 or half the damage from the attack, whichever is higher. Ah, that's interesting. And if you're proficient with armor, you can add your proficiency to the armor save. Ooh, that is going to be very useful. (laughs) Very useful. (laughs) Yeah. So
0: if you can buy proficiency for armor, absolutely absolutely right. do
1: that. but speaking from a from from the the standpoint of a cinematic game master if i'm trying to run something that is going to feel like an action movie i really like this armor rule the armor saves your bacon but only when you need it to save your bacon it's not going to keep you from running out of hit points it's not it's not going to keep you from you know the john McClane experience right you're gonna get beaten up you're going to get um lacerations and bruises and but you're not actually going to take anything life-threatening or debilitating unless the armor fails you
0: i'm looking up right now whether or not they have sunder mechanics in everyday heroes ah
1: well you know if you take a look at the character class for uh strong hero they do have the ability to break objects
0: and that would I'm assuming break armor as well
1: that's a very interesting question I did not see anything about sundering armor but if you can generally destroy um, objects I don't see why armor would be that different
0: yeah That would be a perfectly valid tactic to try to do. Try to, uh, if somebody's got really high armor, do what you can to defeat the armor. Right. But I do not see it in just kind of scrolling through the uh, index right now. I don't see it right this second.
1: Right. I didn't see it either, but I wasn't looking for it. And it is a 400 page. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) four hundred and like what 60 page pdf actually
1: so the armor rules again are pretty innovative uh uh, a very interesting take on armor that doesn't involve either making you harder to hit or subtracting dr from every single attack
0: absolutely although although the tough hero remember the tough hero does get a little bit of dr
1: well, the tough hero gets DR, but see, here's my argument there. The the tough hero deserves DR because that's their shtick. They're the tough hero. If you simply go with the model of armor as DR for everyone, you're rapidly going to find that certain weapons, like, say, the dagger or some sort of uh, holdout pistol or derringer are going to end up being irrelevant weapons because... yeah um at at some point the dr is going to be for you know for a d4 weapon or something to that effect and you're going to end up with weapons that simply can't ever get through armor and i think we have all seen those scenes in films where you have that lucky shot yeah you you find that soft spot in the armor you you find that uh rubber gasket behind the knee because you can't put a metal plate behind the knee you know or or throw that lucky dagger straight into the visor of the helmet and there's no way to do that with with dr unless you know you're using uh okay it's a critical hit so it's double damage and that's 2d4 and um this actually feels more cinematic to me than dr across the board yeah but that said I don't have a problem with daggers being worthless against a high level tough hero because that's the tough hero. That's their shtick.
0: All right. So, something else that's interesting is you know, we're talking about the armor value, the penetration value. Um, vehicles function pretty much the same way. Uh-huh. Vehicles have some character attributes, namely an armor value a constitution a dexterity and a strength bonus and the armor value but you know what it doesn't have is hit points uh the vehicle attributes are used uh in certain cases instead of player attributes when making ability checks for specific tasks so if you're in a if you're in a dump truck its dexterity is going to be abysmal while its strength and constitution are going to be really high Right. So you'll be able to go plowing through, um, you know, a, a wall, but you're not going to be able to take a corner, <laughs> not, right? Not easily.
1: And and I noticed that the dex bonus of vehicle serves as an upper limit for applying the character's dex when driving it. So the more the more maneuverable and designed for agility a vehicle is, the better a fast character will will be taking advantage of that vehicle
0: now here's a question and i'm looking this up right now do the vehicle uh attributes act as and I, the only way i can really see it is maybe as the dexterity attribute does it act as a limiter on the vehicle skill the dex so can,
1: attribute does but okay. the um the strength I, can't,
0: I, I yeah i can't see where the strength of the constitution would
1: Right, no. The strength is basically acceleration. It's how, how badass is your motor, is what the yeah. strength is there for. And the con is what you use for the basically the armor save. So it works okay. a, a lot like the personal armor. You roll the vehicle's con, and if you fail, then you basically roll a critical hit. You roll something that is going to degrade the effectiveness of the vehicle, and if you take enough of those, you end up with the vehicle being totaled. Which I noted from the rules is uh, obviously much more serious for an aircraft than it is for a car. You know, a a car will come to a stop. An aircraft will fall out of the sky. Um, So now
0: I... This reminds me, and maybe it's because I've got savage worlds on the brain right now, but this is very similar to the to the vehicle mechanics and particularly like the chase type mechanics for savage worlds, yes, um, and how they deal with that. This is not a uh, a five e specific thing. I don't remember this in in five e anywhere else unless it appeared in some splat book or something for vehicles I, that I don't I think never saw. I've
1: seen a. Uh, you know, I haven't, I have the new Spelljammer stuff, but I'm not allowed to look at it till Christmas because it's supposed to be under the tree. But um, I don't know that it has vehicle, like I've heard complaints online saying, well, they released Spelljammer, but they didn't put ship combat in it. I haven't seen rules for vehicular combat in D&D 5E that would be analogous to what we're talking about. Like there yeah. are, there's no analog to a car. You'd be on horseback. Yeah. Or, or maybe a horse cart you know for that cool chase scene in Willow. But <laughs> I haven't seen I haven't seen rules um, in D d that would translate over to a James Bond style car chase with you know bulletproof shields and oil slicks and stuff. Um, I will say that this game does have a neat set of chase rules built into it, both for on foot and mountain
0: yeah and we're we're going to get into that a little bit later um because yes. i made some i made some notes on that um but going back through equipment there's uh another interesting piece of equipment and every single game group i've ever run has always tried to do you know tried to build a uh a layer or a castle or a keep or something like that
1: oh absolutely
0: and and the rules or at least Everyday Heroes provides some rules for that. It's called Useful Places, and it, it it exists in the equipment section, and it's a kind of a catch-all for specific kinds of locations or buildings that kind of that can provide a bonus. And the kinds of useful places that Everyday Heroes provides are an armory a home, a lab, a laboratory, a safe house, a storage unit, a studio, and a workshop, okay. because remember, this is, this is modern times. Um Each place uh, has a level that you can buy it at. And obviously, uh, and like I said, this is using the wealth mechanics from before. So levels one through five with greater levels, providing more of a bonus. Um. For instance, in the level three armory, you can find weapons up to price level three. In the laboratory, uh, it provides equipment that increases the DC of experiments that you're allowed to do. So what what this means is, uh, it doesn't necessarily make the it doesn't make the experiments harder. It just has the right kind of equipment to conduct higher level uh, difficulty experiments. So I think the highest level one, uh, the level five laboratory allows you to do, I want to say it was like DC 30 experiments.
1: So, so yeah, so it like unlocks the ability to let you do that. Exactly.
0: It doesn't change the DC for it, which isn't exp- explicitly
1: stated in the in the description. Okay. See, I like that a lot. I have enjoyed like ever since first getting into DD and reading the little passages at ninth level a fighter can build a castle or a you know a, a thief can start a thieves guild i've always loved that kind of stuff and then when i started getting into games like uh, tsr's marvel superheroes had a whole list of prices for adding things to your lair like a danger room from from x-men and stuff like oh, that. oh yeah um stuff like
0: that is oh, yeah that that's fodder for the brain, and players, in, at least in my experience, really like playing around with those options.
1: Oh, yes, like that's the kind of thing that that I I know I spent hours designing back when I was a kid, first getting into role playing and and I know other players that do too. Um, I really dig the the ability to have this sort of base. Um, oh yeah, and it, it gives them
0: uh, agency within whatever world you're building. If they devote their resources to, you know, at least in everyday heroes, buying a lab, well, by God, they're going to use that lab. They're going to find ways to make it useful for them, and that also includes if you threaten the lab, they will defend the lab. You know, yes. it becomes it becomes a. Eh, it becomes both the sword and the shield. Ah. They will, they as the sword, they will wield it. As the shield, they will defend
1: it. Yep, I like it. And it also reminds me of some of my favorite old, um, you know, 80s cartoon properties where there was always a cool base. You know, Oh, absolutely. There was Boulder Hill and Mask or G.I. Joe Headquarters or Castle Grayskull. You know, your team always had a place they could fall back to and call home and yeah. i think that's and it, it gets your characters to invest in exactly in-
0: all right the next thing i've gotten in my notes here feats so i had flashbacks to third edition while going through these feat lists
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's not always a good experience like not
0: always good but in this case i don't see like feet requirements so there's no le- nested lists of things right so all right so here's the thing feats are broken up into minor and major categories and uh something we talked about in last episode with the play test of 1d and d which i find very interesting so every time an archetype gains a feat and they gain them at specific levels They can choose between two minor feats or one major feat. And the major feats are like the quite powerful feats that you saw in 5th edition.
1: Right, yeah, Um, 5e feats are not the same animal as a 3e feat.
0: No, not at all. Now, feats are further subdivided into basic and advanced feats. So you'll have a minor basic or a major basic. Um, basic feats are all minor, and they are they're pretty generic, to be honest with you. And basically, you you get the ability score increase feat, and it gives you a point that you can put into an ability score, or the skill expertise feat, or the uh, equipment proficiency feat. Um, minor advanced feats provide bonuses that mimic other classes' abilities, or provide new and unique advantages, such as brute which allows you to hinder opponents when you're using blunt melee weapons, which is kind of similar to the, uh, what was it? The, the 5e, like one of the hammer feats or something like that. Um, or there's also the fast hands, which is a minor advanced feat, which gives you the ability to reload and service guns much faster.
1: Praise the Lord and pass the
0: ammunition. So going through and looking at these feats, uh, multiclassing is now a feat. So it is not just a, a weird little game mechanic um, that that it was in 5th edition where you can kind of do this and it would give you... uh You know, I, I had a couple people try to multi-class. The rules, in my opinion, weren't as clear as they could be. In this version, you just take the, the multi-classed feat and it tells you what you get out of the archetype which is very cool. And in addition to that, uh, the multi-classing feat also is broken up into what are called archetype feats, class feats, and advanced class feats. And all told, I I think I did the math, there's 56 uh, feats before you get into the multi-classing feats. Um, there's a multi-class feat for each of the six archetypes. There's a multi-class feat for each of the 20 classes. And then another, uh, 20 feats for the advanced class features. So the, uh, the scrapper class would have the advanced scrapper class. That's 102 feats in total. That's wow. absolutely
1: staggering, right but in a way all of those multi-classing feats are really sort of one thing but they had to have a separate entry for each of the the classes so another major change uh
0: in everyday heroes is classes only go up to level 10 as opposed to level 20 now we we did talk about this very briefly um but uh What this does is it caps your proficiency bonus and it mirrors it. What's in 5e, a level 10 character only has a proficiency bonus of plus four. And so what that does is because they're using the 5e rules, the maximum character you can get right now is only, uh, or the maximum character you can build right now only has a plus four proficiency bonus. It does make me wonder if they're planning to, to bring character advancement
1: to level 20 at some point i don't know i mean they could but i i don't know i find myself thinking 10 levels is perfect for what this game is trying to do um but i know there's a lot of people out there that think at 10th level you're just getting started it's more of an
0: old school kind of kind of view to it with some of the the AD and D folks that I remember, the uh, some stories like my level twenty four character, my level you know level thirty character.
1: Yeah, I mean, one time, one time in middle school when we were all first getting into D and D, we got into the twenty somethings, but that was a pretty crazy Monty Hall kind of thing, and and ever since then. I can't, I don't know in the intervening 35 years if I've gotten a character north of, say, 12th or 14th. Um,
0: Yeah, I I can't think of that either. I mean, that might have to do with, as we've gotten older, time has become much more of a a commodity. That's true, uh, that's
1: true. Yeah. I know for me personally, I kind of like playing through the um, what I call the zero to hero character arc. I know a lot of people use that terminology too, where you go from first level to say what we used to call name level back in the day. You know, um, when your level title becomes your class name or something close to it, when when your magic user gets the title wizard, when your when your fighter gets the title lord, and that's when you can put down your roots and establish your base and, and pick up your followers. And that's the point where we either retired characters and started new ones or where the game completely changed its focus from wandering around the, you know, wandering around the countryside, finding things to loot. And now, now we're the people in charge and we're running, you know, we're running a... A uh, kingdom. A kingdom. So I'm interested to see what is the analog to that in everyday heroes? If they do choose to go above 10th level, uh, what is that next tier for, for everyday heroes? Like if you, if you went to level 20 um, you know, if the, the main heroes in a adventure film are around fifth level, like they, like they seem to be in that free preview of escape from New York then you can guess that your characters like, you know, Snake Plissken are probably going to be ninth or 10th level. I know if you look at the monster section in this book, you see that like the big time mob bosses or the, you know, the, the top end bad guys are are around the 10th level area. Some of them even a little bit higher, but when you're putting that bad guy against a party, they kind of need the extra couple levels. Yeah. Um but what I'm getting at is what what is the next the next uh threat level? You know, what is the next level you take the game to at that point? Um because at that That's... point you're you're starting to get into superhero territory. Yeah. No, at that point it becomes a matter of scale.
0: Uh bigger organizations, more uh more ways to mess with the characters it doesn't necessarily have to be a direct threat to them it becomes in my opinion it becomes more story story element driven
1: yes um but i mean it it makes you wonder if they were going to do say mission impossible you know a lot of those missions have have global implications so does it follow that you're now talking about a higher level mission or like any other action movie are your characters going to be in the one to 10 range and and you know um, i think it'll be interesting to see where the creators take that oh absolutely um now what i enjoy about the the fact that it's a one to ten spread is that it will not break my math brain the way d20 modern did as far as You know, your proficiency caps out at plus four. If you've got expertise in something, that's only a plus eight. Um, Ability scores cap at 20. So that gives you a range of plus two to plus 13. If as long as you're not talking about, you know, the lower attributes, Um, if you're talking about what the character is focused in, you know, it tops out at around a a bonus of 13, which is, is a far cry from, back in d20 modern where you could go up to 20th level you could get up to 23 skill ranks you had ability score bonuses you had feat bonuses i noticed that while there are occasionally straight bonuses in everyday heroes they tend to use advantage disadvantage instead of dice bonuses so you avoid that number creep that happened uh in all of the the OGL games of that era.
0: Absolutely. And I've, I've been a big fan of the advantage, disadvantage mechanics since, uh, since 5e. And it's a, it's a great way to, to handle that kind of thing. All right. Well, since we're talking about advantage, disadvantage, um, let's talk about skills, which is the primary thing that you rolled with advantage or disadvantage. Right. Um, 5e, had 18 skills. Everyday hero has 22 skills. That means that you're going to be using your feats to gain skill proficiencies a lot more. Um, They've added in uh, what I love, an endurance feat, or I'm sorry, an endurance skill, which I'm still not 100% sure how this is not like a constitution saving throw yet. But five uh, E did not have any uh, any skills tied to the Constitution stat. But we've got uh, acrobatics, arts and crafts, athletics, computers, deception, endurance, which is what I was saying was the Constitution skill. Right. Insight, intimidation, investigation, mechanics, medicine. Natural sciences, perception, performance, persuasion, security, sleight of hand, social sciences, stealth, streetwise, survival, and vehicles. Those are all 22 skills that you'll find in Everyday
1: Heroes. So my first reaction when I was looking through here was that vehicles was way too broad of a skill because that covers you know, air vehicles and ground vehicles, all vehicles. But then I realized that's exactly the opposite argument I had when we were talking about Star Wars. Um, Exactly, yeah. And that, that I loved when spaceship pilot meant everything and when they broke it down into fighters and transports and capital ships someone wait a minute wait a minute this is star wars it's cinematic everybody can you know just fly almost anything and why would you do that in a game that's supposed to be fast moving and cinematic and so i kind of had to check myself and go okay you can't be salty about star wars second edition if you're gonna bitch about everyday heroes having one catch all vehicle skill Um, I suppose if you came out with a setting that was vehicle centric, like, you know, imagine I got one of my, one of my wishes from way, way back and somebody released Crimson Skies for Everyday Heroes. I imagine there would be a lot more airplane specific things and perhaps even a separate piloting skill
0: yeah, but, yeah, in that kind of case, it's very easy for game designers or even GMs who are wanting to do that to add in skills, uh, take out other ones that aren't applicable right and and create something that will really kind of work with uh, work with your game.
1: Well, and I think the soonest that we're gonna see what the designer's intent is is when the Pacific Rim uh, book drops. Because yeah. we'll we'll see what they how they handle Jaegers and and Absolutely, Jaeger pilots. Yeah. Um, I know they've teased us with the stats for one of the Jaegers on the yeah. The... No,
0: I I did see that. Yeah,
1: but they didn't show us a Jaeger pilot. So yeah,
0: I'm very curious to see how that's going to be. Whether or not Jaeger weapons are maybe a proficiency, like a weapon proficiency, right? Or if there's you know how they're going to do skills. I, I'm willing to bet it's not going to be a vehicle or a Jaeger skill. They're going to do it similar to how we did it in Dominions of Steel. Okay. That's my, that, that's, that's where my money is right now. And you can quote me on that.
1: So, um, yeah. I look forward to seeing that because you and I are both mecha heads. I know that oh, of, yeah. <laughs> of all the cool expansions that they're coming out with for this game that we both want to get our eyes on the one we probably want to get our eyes on from a game design standpoint, more than anything is Pacific Rim. Uh, yeah, wanna, absolutely. We, you know, as much as I want to play an escape from New York and I want to play a Rambo and uh, skull Island sounds freaking phenomenal. Um, the game designer in me, who's played BattleTech since '86, is like, "Show me the mecha."
0: Hey, I just want to know if these books are going to be cross-compatible, so I can bring my Jaeger to Skull Island. I mean,
1: that would be pretty cool.
0: Fuck you, King Kong. That's all I'm saying.
1: Well, I mean, technically, Kong fits into sort of a kaiju. Yeah. No, space. He, uh, he. 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 Fought along
0: with or against and with Godzilla. He is, yes, he is Kaiju. All right, back to the game. So, saving throws are going to be similar to 5e with uh, a saving throw for each of the six core attributes, and Mm -hmm. each of the archetypes are going to have specific uh, saving throws that they're proficient in. Right. Uh, There are four special. Uh, saving throws. So 5e had death saving throws, and they exist here in Everyday Heroes as well. Yes. And basically, to do that, you roll an unmodified d20, and as long as you roll higher than a 10, you succeed. If you make three of these, you are no longer dying. If you fail three of these, you are dead. Jeff is the only person I have ever met who has ever failed three of those before. Uh,
1: and I did it twice. Yep um I, uh, I but it's I, a
0: very simple rule
1: right i will say i find the death saves much more um what's the word i don't i don't want it to sound like this but much more appropriate in everyday heroes um because you know i grew up playing old school dnd and you died a lot and it sucks and yeah. modern players would not really enjoy it the way the way that we did because that's all we had we didn't realize there was a more story oriented (laughs) approach to gaming so we just died a lot um but everyday heroes is is modeling action movies and in action movies you your heroes don't necessarily die all that often they come real close oh yeah so so i don't find the the death save mechanic as jarring as i did coming from basic and first edition D and then walking into 5e and going wait a minute this makes it really hard for you to die uh but i can't speak from experience as you pointed out it's not impossible it is not impossible
0: <laughs> so okay so going back to the special saves so, like I said, I talked about death save. That is, that is what they call a special save. Yes. We talked about armor saving throws and vehicle damage saving throws when we were talking about armor. Both of those are considered special saves as well. Okay. The fourth type is a luck saving throw. And mm-hmm. I like the fact that they added this in here. I couldn't find a similar mechanic in 5e, but with a luck saving throw if the gm wants to leave some event entirely up to chance you make a luck saving throw you roll a unmodified d20 and i want to say it's dc 11 it's not dc 10 and so if the wandering monster is going to find your camp you know you make that luck saving
1: throw so and assuming you 11, succeed that's yep. an even 50/50
0: yep absolutely okay. Let's see here. New rules, suppressive fire.
1: I love this rule. This
0: game, this game is modern. This is D or this is the the current version of D20 Modern, uh, Everyday Heroes, and so you're going to have guns and a lot of ranged weapons, and so you're going to need to be able to model suppressive fire. Uh so couple couple you know kind of sub rules under suppressive fire. A couple caveats rather um it can only be done with semi-auto or full auto weapons mm-hmm. each weapon type covers a target area dictated by the type of weapon being used so semi-auto weapons have a, a a coverage area and full auto weapons have a different coverage area yes and then using suppressive fire and this is the, this is a quite important thing using suppressive fire is not considered An attack by the shooter. There's no attack role. You just say, for my action, I'm doing suppressive fire. That means that unless uh, enemies or targets in the area, if they don't choose to dive for cover, which is another action you can do, they automatically take damage. And this means that archetype or class talents that add bonus damage, like sneak attack, you can't add that to the damage from suppressive fire. But any talents that your uh, your archetype or class have that modify weapon damage. So this is this is the important part. You know, this is not adding bonus damage. This is modifying weapon damage. So if your weapon normally does 2D6, but you have a talent that causes that weapon to do 2D8 that counts for suppressive fire but not the i you know not the sneaky rogue type who's hiding and gets their sneak attack damage
1: i like that this is a simple rule for suppressive fire and and um the reason that it sticks out to me is i remember what a mess the original automatic fire rules were in d20 modern um and it's because of interactions with feats and Are you shooting two weapons and is one of them in your offhand? And uh, do you have this feat? Do you have that feat? And so there were a number of tables telling you what your accuracy was for full automatic fire. And it was just, uh, it it was ridiculous. So, you know, this is a simple expend this amount of ammunition, taking this action, and anybody in this zone is going to get hit unless they die for cover
0: yeah That's, which it, it's a it's a reaction so they can do it at any point assuming yeah. they haven't already used their reaction
1: yeah and it and it's easy peasy i love it and the one thing that made me kind of smile was i noticed you had to have like 20 rounds in a fully automatic weapon to do suppress fire but a semi-automatic weapon only had to have eight and i thought that was a curiously specific number um because it reminds me of exactly the number of rounds in an end block clip for a Garand. So I, (laughs) I, I immediately started thinking, Oh wow, we'll do, you know, a world war two game in, in, uh, everyday heroes. And every time one of, one of the straight up infantry dudes suppresses, I'll have a sound effect to go ping when they're done firing their eight rounds. Um, I just thought, you know, why not 10 rounds? Why not five rounds? Why eight? And, and like, that's the first thing that popped into my head. Well, that's the number of 30-06 rounds in a, in a Garand. Um, So, uh, yeah. And now you mentioned dive for cover. Can you tell the audience a little more about how that works?
0: Yeah. So like I said, it's a reaction. So assuming that you have not used your reaction for this turn, you can dive for cover uh, when, uh, one of your enemies uh, declares suppressive fire. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, is you can use this to avoid damage from explosions or sleep gas or other area effect weapons.
1: Okay. So that's cool. So if I got this straight, suppressive is automatically successful when you take the suppressive fire action um, and dive for cover is also automatically successful if suitable cover is within your movement range, which is half your normal speed, but you end up prone at the end of it. Absolutely. So, which
0: means which means using a uh, an action to stand up.
1: Right, 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 and so you, um, yeah. So that means that we're probably going to see a whole, a whole lot more suppression and counter suppression in this game than we have in any other like RPG that we've played recently. And that's pretty accurate to how modern fire combat works.
0: Absolutely. I like the fact that they're trying to model these kind of things.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, that was, that was one of the the surprising statistics that I remember learning when I was getting my, uh, military history degree it was when they started talking about well how many rounds are fired versus how many rounds actually strike an opponent and it was some ridiculous ratio um even as far back as as world war 2 there were there were many 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 more rounds fired to suppress than actually fired to kill
0: yeah um now so. something that uh i've got the actual die for cover rules up right right now mm-hmm. and uh, Let's see. So there is there is some some more specifics that might be useful here. So normal movement rules apply to the movement granted by this reaction, which is not deducted from your normal movement on your turn. So you don't have to worry about uh, if you've already spent all your movement. If a character reaches a suitable safe space, they avoid all damage and effects and they fall prone at the end of their movement if they are not already prone. If the character doesn't reach a suitable save space, they suffer the specified damage and effects then fall prone at the end of their movement, if not already prone. So you have to have actual cover for you to dive behind cover. But what is interesting is even if a combatant can't escape using dive for cover, diving for cover can at least get them further away from the center of the effect if it's Uh, Like a grenade or something like that. So if the grenade has, you know, it does 3d8 damage in this radius and 1d8 in this radius, if you can get further away, you might be able to be, you might be able to take less damage. All right, there's one more kind of fire rule I want to talk about. And that's burst fire. Once again, we're talking about modern weapons. Some range weapons have a burst value, and basically, whenever you're using this rule, the attack, uh, the attacker. So let's say that I am, I'm shooting a weapon that has a burst fire value. My attack is made at disadvantage, but I add one additional die of damage if the attack hits. And you'll remember that because you don't have. Uh, Really high AC values or armor uh, uh, defense values in this, that you'll probably more often than not be able to be able to make a disadvantage attack than say you're going up against somebody with plus one plate
1: armor or something like that. Right, right, right. So hmm, I, you know, when I was reading the rule, I didn't take that into account that the that the defense numbers are going to be lower in general than a dnd armor class because i haven't
0: done i haven't done the math so let's see 10 plus a maximum attribute and remember that each of the archetypes have used their their prime attribute as the yes in their defense so it'll be 10 plus uh four Right on an eighteen plus four, yeah on an. Uh, It's actually
1: plus five if you max out at twenty. If you max out at
0: twenty, so fifteen. Yeah. And then you get a defense bonus based on the level that you are, and I believe that maxes out at plus
1: four. So. Something that we forgot to mention back during character creation is that much like fifth edition, while there is an option to roll 46, drop the lowest and place the scores where you want them. This game defaults to a point by or a standard array where 15 is the highest ability score that you're going to get. Yeah. Um, whether through per point purchase or through through using the array. And so while you can get a couple of bumps from your background and your profession, um, you're not going, unless you use the the 4d6 method, you're not going to have starting characters max out their, their prime requisite stat. Yeah. Um, It's just, it it, would require way too much um, resource to do that.
0: Okay, so it looks like most of the heroes are going to have, at maximum level, a an eighteen defense, which would with make a tough hero with a nineteen. Tough yeah, hero that, a 19. that
1: would make hitting with disadvantage pretty pretty difficult. But they're not going to have those numbers at low levels. Exactly.
0: And so I think that'll that'll tend to uh, play quite a bit better than, like I said, some higher level D&D games where you've got your, you know, plus one shield, plus one heavy armor, stuff like right. that. Right.
1: And if you think about it, uh, Burst Fire giving you disadvantage on the attack is no different than using any weapon in D&D at long range.
0: Absolutely. That, yeah, long range. And that was one of the things that I really liked that they did with, uh, in 5th edition, you had the normal range, you had long range. It's a normal attack roll for normal range. It's
1: disadvantage for long range. It was absolutely, it was, it was beautiful. It was very simple. Yes. Now, there is something that just popped into my head that I wanted to, this whole discussion as we're going through all these rules, every so often my brain went, hey, wait a minute, if I'm playing a character of this archetype in class, I can completely do this differently for for example um the agile hero based on dexterity gets advantage on initiative checks which oh,
0: which is
1: which is pretty awesome the uh the the heavy gunner which is a a strong hero archetype actually has the ability to add their strength to their ranged attacks rather than their dexterity ooh that's a very interesting take on it. Um, and can actually add their strength bonus to damage as well for ranged attacks. Um, so you've got
0: your Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger in basically any movie that he wields a, uh, a minigun.
1: Right. Um, also, you mentioned that uh, if a weapon was not at least semi-automatic, it could not be used to suppress. The sharpshooter class under Agile Hero gets the ability to ignore the slow-firing penalty on certain weapons so they could for instance possibly suppress with a bolt action rifle because they're just that fast at cycling the bolt that's really cool
0: so like I, i like how there's all like you have the rule and then you have the you know the one exception to the rule as a
1: class ability right right and so i was just thinking about that plus taking a look the standard like like generic movie assault rifle that's in the book it does a d12 damage so if you manage to hit with a burst you're you're doing 2d12 damage plus your dex bonus that's that's quite a bit of damage at uh, you know starting the game
0: so another new rule and i absolutely love this are the chase rules which are something that's due to 5e and remind me of a combination of the dramatic task and chase rules from Savage Worlds more than any other 5e mechanic. All right, so in Savage Worlds dramatic tasks, you make skill rolls to earn tokens, and you have to earn a certain number of tokens before you complete that dramatic task. And then in chase rules, there are special actions you can take and then you, uh, based on like complications that you get from drawing cards, and so like a, because Savage Worlds loves cards. Uh, if you draw a uh, a club card, you might be minus two to your skill roll. So in in Everyday Heroes, they take a kind of a similar approach. And every round, the GM uh, creates a complication that sets the, the DC, the, uh, the number that you need to roll, uh, before characters can take actions during the chase. Another interesting thing is, is the GM doesn't track points for NPCs. So the players make all the roles, and their roles determine how much better or worse they're doing than their opponents. Oh, if cool. The, yeah, so if the PCs lose a chase point, it's assumed the NPCs gain one. It's a very simple kind of management system that, in to my recollection, there's not really a way to compare to anything in 5e. So the chase, the chase complications in everyday heroes arise at the start of every round and are subdivided into hazards, such as an obstacle, or challenges, mm-hmm. such as maybe uh, wet roads or something like that. Every round, the heroes roll against the hazard, and their successes and failures are measured individually and generate these, these points. If the players deal with the complications successfully, they can take special actions in the chase, such as bra- brace, gain ground, or combat.
1: That that sounds like that would be a lot of fun in practice. I I kind of want yeah. Uh, I want to take this game for a spin. Damn it! So and I and I, I find it interesting that brace is a a catch all action. It's not just I am bracing a pistol to get a good shot. It's actually I'm going to brace to do xyz um you you can take different actions um yeah based on brace giving you advantage which yeah, I this think is, is not like cool.
0: this is not like when you brace while i'm driving uh right 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 brace for impact while i'm driving these are these are tied to specific actions that you can do once your character has successfully dealt with a hazard yes um And then the vehicle chase rules are working in a similar vein, except a lot of the hazards are only really going to apply to the driver, not necessarily uh, everybody else. But whether or not the driver is successful or not will depend on what the players
1: can do. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So they can sort of give the driver an assist if they can come up with a, a justification for doing so. Absolutely. Absolutely. See, I, li- I like the kind of team-based approach that that implies.
0: Yeah. And all these vehicle rules, in my, in my opinion, are very reminiscent of the vehicle rules in Savage Worlds with condition, conditions and contests and charts for damage and specific vehicle-related events.
1: I I would agree, except um, I do think that that they handle the math side, the scaling side a little more elegantly, because as much as I love Savage Worlds, uh, when you start dealing with certain vehicles of a certain size, the numbers start to get bigger than most players like to do in their heads when you're like, okay, here's the toughness, this much of its armor, I have a penetration of this much. I mean, it's simple addition and subtraction, but it does it does tend to slow the game down a bit. Whereas and that's in it, why
0: we did that's why we did scaling in Dominions of Scale. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: Uh, in Everyday Heroes, you just have a, a vehicle save, absolutely, and it's it's a very straightforward thing. And you're not you're not counting MDC for the vehicle. You're not counting kills like in Mechton. You know, yeah. it's 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 a very streamlined vehicular system now. I think it'll be interesting to see do they apply this to Jaegers when we get to Pacific Rim? In other words, great question. Is, is this core, which is clearly designed for, for mostly everyday vehicles in chase scenes? Like, you know, you can do the Italian job with this, or you could you might be able to do uh, chase scenes from Fast and the Furious, or maybe a Bond film but if you start to get to the very vehicle centric kind of things or throwing in oddball vehicles like mecha is this going to be scalable to that or are they going to add something new uh, i'm very interested to see how that works absolutely absolutely
0: so let's go down let's go down to the gm section
1: indeed um, i enjoyed the gm section
0: yeah um so I like how tightly written this section is. It goes right into the meat of running this game. Uh, manages to do it all in about 100 pages, which is, in my opinion, a really, really cool thing. Mm-hmm. They've got everything from classic kind of like traveling events to computer hacking and security, snipers, standoffs, What what happens when authorities are called. They've also got rules for injuries and explain where injuries can occur, um which you know, when you drop uh below zero hit points. Uh, what I like about the injuries thing is you don't have to use them it's it's it isn't a a definite rule. It's kind of you do it hard and fast as you see fit if you want to do it that way, but they provide you with guidelines on when to do it and how to do it, right. So if you, obviously, if you're going for a lighter feel, don't do it at all. But if you're going mm-hmm. for a more realistic a- approach, um, you can find the injury section on page 302.
1: And that's something that we normally don't see in games based on D and D. Is no, specific, not at all. Injury. Specific injuries and like hit locations. Once again, I
0: I know that I keep I know that I keep bringing up Savage Worlds, but once again, that's a very Savage Worlds kind of thing.
1: Right, but I mean there are other games that have had stuff like this. I I remember you and I were both really enamored of the D66 table in Mech Warrior first edition where you could get your foot torn off by a critical. A
0: critical oh no, thing. no, absolutely. This isn't the first game that's ever done it, but with the uh the kinds of mechanics that I'm seeing with the the chase rules and a right, right. fire and stuff like that. It it seems to me that I, I'm I'm starting to kind of gather where they got their inspiration for some of these new systems from.
1: And, you know, that's like Ross always said, is, is you know, great game designers tend to gather inspiration from other games.
0: He Absolutely. Put
1: it, he put it in a little bit different phraseology, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's see here. That brings us, you know, the Game Master section towards the end of, of the book. So we're going to go into the section we call our after action report, much like the AARs that Bobby and I used to have to do back in the day. um, We try to come up with three sustains, that is three things that we liked about the way this was done that we want to keep going with and perhaps even carry into other games. And then we were also going to look at three improves, three things that we would like to do a little bit differently with this game. So uh, let's see, Bobby, what's your first sustain on this game?
0: My first sustain is the, the whole book, All of Everyday Heroes. It is not nearly as wordy as 5e, specifically uh, uh, the, the 5e player's handbook. When you're going through and you're looking at the classes, you don't have six pages of what a wizard is. You have strong hero and they maybe have two paragraphs that makes it a lot uh, easier to get into the uh, the meat and potatoes of the character as opposed to what you know some designer thinks you need to know about what a wizard is Um, it also really helpful for when you want to find relevant abilities and rules it's very clear that they are designing a fast-paced game here
1: yes Um, what's your first sustain jeff Mine is the sheer number of options you've got to create just the character you want while still being familiar rules-wise to a 5e player. So there's there's a common complaint in, uh, nowadays. Um, I have read multiple game masters writing on social media going, ah, I can't get my players to do anything but 5e. All they want to do is 5e. I can't get them to try anything new. Well, this game is based on the 5e core. So maybe that'll make it easier for game masters to sell this to their players who maybe came in on 5th edition. Maybe they were huge fans of Critical Role or what have you, and they've never played any other edition. If you are able to present them with, hey, this uses exactly the rules you're familiar with, but with some new classes, that might that might give them the the ability to coax those players into trying something new and awesome. So uh, yeah, my first sustain is, this game gives you so many options for being, for creating your character, but still stays true to the 5e core.
0: So for my second sustain, one of the uh, the thing I like about this book is it's an all-in-one tome. It's a combination player's handbook, DM's guide and monster manual all in a single volume the character rules the gm rules and the bestiary all come in at a uh, 460 pages and that's only 144 pages more than the 5e player's handbook now they they managed to you know there's no spells in this game so you don't have to devote 70 pages to spells like they did in the, the player's handbook And if you think about it, the monster manual and the DM's guide for 5e were easily the same size as the player's handbook. So for 460 pages, I feel like you're getting more bang for your buck.
1: What about you, Jeff? So I think my my second sustain is linked to yours. Um, In the GM section of this single tome rulebook, uh, you have a handy framework to create stat blocks for level appropriate opponents and challenges And you can pretty much do it on the fly. There's this master table of suggested DCs and bonuses, and that's reproduced in the GM screen PDF that you can uh, download from DriveThru. I love this. This sort of thing helps a GM out. It's very much like what we were talking about earlier when you were raving about how cool it was that they give you a, a look under the hood to build your own backgrounds and your own professions. Well, here, they're giving you the math and the expected DCs, expected amounts of hit points and defenses to build opponents. And this just lets the GM go wild. I think it's really, really awesome.
0: Now, so they did do something similar to that in 5e for creating new monsters, but it was very weighty. It was like eight pages to do what I think they did a lot quicker
1: in everyday heroes. Yeah. They do things pretty concisely in this book. Like, you know, it is 460 pages, but it's 460 pages with very little fat. Almost everything Absolutely. in here is, is directly applicable to the game, uh, which is in, in some ways, it's a little bit of a shame. Like I said, I want to know more about these iconic characters um you know you get a you get a quote you get some artwork um obviously the designers have a world in mind and and at some point i'd like to see what that world is but this is a very lean well written um single book game uh how about sustain number 3
0: sustain number 3 uh i i i'd love uh for them to keep providing rules for how to build out new editions for each little subsystem of the game. So as you were talking about professions and backgrounds, those are subsystems. I love to tinker and I love when creators show their work. I think it's a nice tip of the hat to homebrewers who will love to play this game and create content for this game. I also like the Appendix A of the book uh, details all of the changes that they made from 5e. So if you're really familiar with the 5e rules, then you can cut down there to see if there's anything that uh, you have to pay special attention to.
1: Yeah, that is a very useful addition to the book.
0: All right, what about you, Jeff? What What's your third sustain?
1: So I love the clear examples of gear and the innovative armor system. It makes adding equipment for a specific setting absolutely a snap. Like we, we have been talking about homebrewing this whole time, and the book is excellent at giving you the tools with which to create, you know, backgrounds, professions, NPCs, equipment, and just looking at this um, equipment list of, of weapons and gear and armor they actually give you little little notes. You know, this armor is, is you know, civilian armor or this is military armor and this is meant to do this or this. And so that gives you the benchmark you need to take a look at the film that you're adapting or the the IP or, or what have you and go, okay, I need armor that's roughly equivalent. So I'm just going to borrow these numbers and maybe tweak them a little. It makes it so easy to homebrew so i really I really like the clear examples and and the uh the ease with which you can homebrew on this so now that we've gotten through our three sustains, here's our three improves. These are the things that we think we might do a little differently um, yeah, with the game, no game is absolutely perfect, so no not at all um let's go into our first
0: improve, Bobby. So the first thing that I'd like to see them improve uh, the chase rules, and I, I have no problem with the chase rules themselves, it's the lack of examples for certain key parts of it, um, they, they do a good job of providing examples in other sections but for the kind of the core dealing with the hazards part which is integral to the chase rules, no example at all right and i feel like that's a missed opportunity um and and i think that the, everybody would benefit if they provided an example on how to set the dc and what skills that the the players would use to deal with said dc uh so yeah what what about your first improve jeff
1: so uh, my first improve is is kind of linked to yours chases can happen on foot but they often happen in all manner of vehicles i feel like there could be a few more vehicle-based feats or even a class or two that are analogous to like the wheelman from spycraft um, in creating the a team to see how character generation works the only character that gave me pause was murdoch Uh, Sure, it's easy to make a character with expertise in vehicles, because expertise, unlike 5e, where it was limited to rogues and and rogue subclasses, um, in Everyday Heroes, anybody can pick up expertise by choosing the proper feeds. But there could be more depth than that to this particular role. Perhaps
0: maybe a feat that'll give you certain bonuses during vehicle chases might be appropriate for a Murdoch type character or for dealing with particular hazards. I think that we 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 discussed this before we you and I had some had some disagreements on whether or not the wheelman was needed. but I think it'd be easy enough to fix, and I think that. Uh, not taking that into account might have been something they 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 should have improved on.
1: Right, right, and and I can see that in a lot of games, um, the wheelman is sort of necessary, but only at the beginning and end of a mission. Uh, I remember a Shadowrun campaign back in the nineties where poor Robbie Hauser was playing our rigor and basically he he drove <laughs> drove us to the location and then waited in the van. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, dedicating an entire class to that might not be a good idea, but at least some feats that would go with
1: it right. would
0: probably be useful,
1: right? Um, because again, you know, action movie genre, somebody's going to want to do Top Gun, somebody's going to do want to do the Fast and the Furious. Um,
0: My girlfriend will want to do the Fast and the Furious.
1: Exactly. Um, so there would definitely be room for uh mad max fury road uh there would be room for characters that are vehicle specific Um, i have a
0: question for you jeff
1: yes very
0: important question indeed who run barter town
1: uh master blaster
0: you damn right yeah all right so what's your second improve
1: ah so my my second improve Uh, My second improve would be the lack of a blank design space for species, lineage, um, you know, what we used to call race. I realize the intent of everyday heroes is to model action movies. Um, However, flipping through the bestiary, you see robots, you see aliens, you see cultist spellcasters, you see sewer mutants. So with these elements present, it's inevitable that a player... Or, or even a GM, is going to want to allow for non-human characters. And my initial thought on that is to just give everybody a feat at first level and then engineer a feat for whatever uh, species, lineage you want to put in there. But I would have liked it if the game designers had left a space and said, look, the core book is all about humans, humans, humans but here's where you would tweak it if you wanted to add something else um you know like uh that's that's just you know something that i was thinking of because in my you know decades of gaming i have always been on the lookout for that system that can do shadow run better than shadow run and i really like the way everyday heroes gives you the opportunity to build characters that fit some of those classic team roles if you're doing a heist style game you know Shadowrun run is one cyberpunk is one leverage is by definition you know the the running a heist crew type game this game would do that so well but to do shadow run you would have to be able to plug in species yeah you um, have to
0: be able to plug in species
1: yeah um... that, that would be my improve what's yours
0: so it actually kind of ties into what you were talking about a little bit with the, the bestiary. Um, my second improve, I didn't actually like the fact that they included ancient, archaic, prehistoric aliens, mutants, robots, and supernatural in, uh, enemies in their bestiary. They dedicate 34 pages to something that's kind of the purview of D&D. And... I understand that the creators of Everyday Heroes are a separate company, and so they needed to do something different. But all the way up until that point, to me, they did an amazing job sticking to the trope of the every of the you know d twenty modern everyday hero type thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of felt like they were just padding out the chapter, and they needed another thirty four pages, and that's what they did. Uh, and they just started
1: including all kinds of fantastical things see I I get where you're going with that but I will remind you that aside from you know a couple of things like Kong Skull Island and Pacific Rim most of the IPs that they are releasing these source books for are 80s action movies uh, or maybe very early 90s and so if you take a look at the homages in that creature section uh, you see Alien, you see Predator you see the terminator those were all really popular and successful action film franchises um during that time period and so i kind of see where they were going with it and and uh at the same time i see i see your point of view as well
0: all right so what do you have for your third improve
1: So my third and final improve is that I don't have the hardcover in my hand already. Um, okay. But seriously, uh, this may sort of contradict something I said above, but I would have liked a bit more granular equipment section. Like I liked the general types of equipment that make modeling specific types pretty easily. Um, and maybe the creators of everyday heroes were keeping the crunchy gun porn for setting specific books or just leaving it out since a gun tends to be a gun in an action film, except for that one huge hand cannon that the one particular bad guy or good guy happens to have. But, um, you know, again, one of my touchstones growing up when I did with role-playing games were games like, uh, I mean, Shadowrun is the obvious one that released a street samurai catalog full of one weapon per page hyper focus on all these different types of, of, weapons but there were other games like gdw's 2300 ad that just provided a ridiculous number of 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 weapons with backgrounds on them oh this was the standard assault rifle of the chinese army but now it's surplus and you can get it anywhere and you know i liked all of that detail i i like that kind of stuff and um in a way going with the generic stuff in in the uh the equipment section, the very thing that made me go, oh, thank God, these guys handed me everything I need to create every weapon or armor I will ever want to create for this game also left me going, oh, where is my named guns? You know, where is my Ares Predator 2? Um, You know, where is my sterns knocked? And so, I don't know, maybe, maybe an equipment book in the future or maybe some of these modules coming with specific equipment tied to the game world um but that 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 would be my gripe
0: so for my third i'm just going to piggyback on the kind of joke he made um i want the hardcover i want it to be released now uh because i i want to run this game and i have a tendency to do better with a physical book that i can reference yes um yeah i mean i i don't if you, if you consider that an improve, considering we're we're going off of this isn't a playtest copy. This is the the final PDF draft, I believe. Uh, but uh,
1: yes and no. Uh, this is yes the and final, no? Yes, this is the release to Kickstarter backers, and they're giving us a period of time. To say, hey, uh, you've got a typo on this page, or you could clarify this on this page. So there is a bug report form out there that you can fill out to to kind of help them squash the bugs. And when okay. that is done, then they will generate, you know, the final form of the, the PDF. Final. Okay. And and there is something you just reminded me. I'm going to add this to my third improve because we're talking about having the PDF and not having the book. Okay. For the love of God. This is a 460-page PDF. Where are the bookmarks? I understand this is the pre-final, not the final. uh, But at least, and I know you can do this, like the PDF is obviously locked. You can't just go in willy-nilly and edit the PDF. They've got it locked with a password. Um, But I know I have had other PDFs that are locked for editing, but still allow the end user to add their own bookmarks this one does not and it's uh you know having created a few characters jumping back and forth between the feats chapter and the the skills chapter and the equipment chapter and back and forth and it would be great to have bookmarks because scrolling through this monster um yeah is not easy yeah not easy at all um so that wraps it up for our sustains and improves on the after action report. Um, there are a lot of things I want to do with this game. Um, and the funny part is lots of them are using rules packet, this rules package in other settings that already have their own role-playing game. Like uh, off the top of my head, warrior, Shadowrun, Robotech, G.I. Joe. Um, all of those worlds have their own rule sets. But as I said above, there are lots of players out there that don't want to learn a new, Rule set, and so you know a lot of them came in through 5e. Some of them are what we call casuals, and I've heard a lot of role players, especially crusty old brognards, um, use casual as an insult. But that's it's not an insult. There is plenty of space in our hobby for the people who don't have the passion or obsession with rule systems like Bobby and I and a lot of our friends have. We will sit down and we will pour over the rules to a game and we will pick them apart and go ooh i like this rule i like this rule but i think this rule could be done better some people just want to play and so learning new systems is is kind of a kind of a, a pisser for those those folks and um, i know we have some other friends who might be into game mechanics but they would look at something like the new robotech rpg um, from strange machine which i love because it has a very fate like feel. But Bobby, you and I know some players out there that look at anything fate-like and think of it as tree hugging hippie crap. Yeah. Like, like it just they, you know, the the Robotech game allows you to take a skill titled strafing run and apply it to a social situation by saying, Okay, I'm gonna go into this room and I'm gonna insult everybody, to, you know, in the room. And that's yeah, how as I'm long as you eat. could as long as you could justify it. Yeah. Right. And and I kind of dig games like that just like I dug your Dresden Files Fate game, but there are players who might want something a little more crunchy and Everyday Heroes fits that niche. Um, you know, if you like D&D, you will totally grok Everyday Heroes. And you can play, you know, your games without getting lost in the quote-unquote tree and hippie crap. Meanwhile, I will be over in the corner doing wonderful things with, with Strange Machines Robotech, which I hope we will talk about in the future. But um, yeah, Everyday Heroes definitely deserves a look. Um, I, I honestly can't wait for the hardcover. Um, I can't wait to see what some of these additional game worlds are like. Uh, Bobby, what are your final takeaways?
0: Uh, final takeaways i i i actually want to to do a shadow run type uh, thing or run or create a shadow run game and then like port over the the wizard or the sorcerer class to this right. and see how it runs um maybe maybe take your idea of doing a species as a feat and play around with that as well but you know use the use the 5e uh, some of the 5e spell lists or create, or basically create a, a genre appropriate spell list and play around with it and see how we can how we can do with that. Um, like this is this is giving me a lot of creative energy, and uh, I always think that is a great thing when talking about a new game. It's it's how can I how can I start uh, playing the kind of games I have in my head.
1: Yes. And, and there's so much about everyday heroes that let you do that. Like I, I started statting Cyclones, the, the, the power armor mecha while I was reading the armor rules and the, the vehicle rules, like in my head. And every time I read a new class going through the character types, I was like, Ooh, I want to play this. No, wait. I want to play this. No, wait. Um, <laughs> uh, The hacker class has a nice concise little set of hacking rules that I think would play really well. Whereas in, in a lot of other games, once the hacker comes on stage- um, It
0: becomes the hacker game and not everybody, a-
1: everybody else goes for pizza while the hacker does their thing. And while it is nowhere near as in-depth or detailed as those other games and their hacking, this is exactly what you would want to hit for the pacing of a movie. Um, Absolutely. It, it, hits, it hits those notes that I'm thinking the designers- we're intending to hit, and and you know it's just like you just said. This makes me want to run the games that are in my head.
0: Yeah, um, if they can do that, I I honestly believe that's good game design, and I think they have put together a hell of a product.
1: I I think so too, and something that we want to throw out there for the listeners is um, we will not be doing reviews every single episode we're going to do some reviews on old games and new games but something that bobby and i want to do is start breaking down game mechanics talking about what goes on and i think bobby this is this is a great turn of phrase under the hood what makes the game run and how do certain mechanics compare to other mechanics and once we have laid the groundwork i think we're going to start piecing together a game design on the podcast so we'll start discussing game designs, we'll start discussing the merits and flaws of various types of, of game mechanics, and maybe we'll even throw some questions out on, on polls or something as we go through and see what you guys think about our crazy mental processes.
0: Thank you very much for listening to the Retro Arcana podcast. If you like this content and want to see more, put Retro Arcana in your GM's toolkit by hitting the subscribe button. You can also reach out to us at our website www.retroarcana.com or hit us up on Twitter at retroarcana. I'm Bobby
1: and I'm Jeff
0: and we'll talk to you later.